0: encourage Pastor Nick as he comes and shares with us. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. So I want to take you back a little bit in my personal history uh, to when I was in year seven, which was 1979. And I was in year seven and uh, our art teacher set us an art homework. Now, our art teacher was called Scratcher because he had this massive big beard and he would always scratch it and uh, he, would, uh, he would kind of consult our work that we'd submitted to him uh, and we would hope that we would get a good mark. Now I remember this particular lesson where I brought in this piece of art homework and it was one of our first pieces that he was going to mark for us and he did three things which I kind of remember to this day. He First of all, he encouraged me. He said, Nick, you have done a good job. That is a good piece of art. Well done. Uh, You've done a great piece of work there. I can see that you've worked hard. What he also did was he reminded me of what good art should do, which is that when you stand in front of the picture, it should try and kind of draw your eye in a bit, that you should feel like it's real, that you feel like it's there. And he reminded me that I had done that. What he also did was he clarified for me all about perspective, and he said, listen, in the next art homework, we're going to work harder on perspective And what you've understood in this homework is good, but we're going to go to the next level and you're going to need to understand even more about perspective. And perspective is that vanishing point in a picture where all the lines have to converge. And he reminded me of what was true about that. And he clarified what perspective was all about. Uh, So what he did uh, all of those years ago in 1979 was he did three things that John does for us this morning. Now, on your cards, I have put a card, uh, uh, sorry, on your seat, sorry, I have put a card for you. There's a card. uh, Hopefully, you'll have one of these. Uh, If you've not got one, reach across to the seat next to you and grab one, and it says three things on it. It says, encourage, catch people doing things right, remind, keep on saying what is true in our faith, and clarify define, simplify, and highlight. Now I want you to keep this card and I want you to stow it away about your person, put it in your wallet, put it in your phone case, put it in your purse, your bag, or whatever, whatever you carry with you. And it's been my prayer that this card would surface in a few weeks' time maybe or maybe next week and it would prompt you to do these things for another person or perhaps another group, I don't know. But when you find this card again, I want you to be prompted by the words on it. And I want you to think to yourself, is there somebody that I can encourage? Is there somebody that I can catch doing, like I've caught them doing the right thing, and I'm just going to encourage them that they did that really, really well? You know, so often we get caught doing the wrong thing, don't we? And We get told off. Well, let's turn that around and let's catch people doing the right thing and then tell them that they're doing the right thing. Is there somebody that we need to remind about the truths of our faith? The the deep things that we believe in our faith, that we know are true. Uh, Maybe in some of our relationships, there are some people where their faith is, you know, it's a bit wobbly. It's like they're just cycling on that bike of their faith and they're wobbling all over the place. And you can come along and you can stabilize them a bit and remind them what it is they need to know. And maybe there's something that you can clarify for another person perhaps there's a younger person in your life who doesn't quite understand their faith or perhaps uh, there's somebody who doesn't quite get some of the teaching of the church or what it means to be a follower of Jesus do that job of reminding them from the prompt on this card so this is for you to keep please take this away with you um, and use this and when it pops up use it that would be great we are looking at a passage from 1 John 2, verses 12 to 14 this morning. So please turn there with me in your Bibles or on your devices, and we are going to take a look at that uh, this morning together. 1 John 2, 12 to 14. I've got it up on the screen for you, and uh, you can follow along with me as we go. It says this, I am writing to you, spiritual offspring... Because your sins are forgiven on account of His name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I wrote to you, young children, because you have known the Father. I wrote to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. I wrote to you, young men, because you are strong And the word of God remains in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, I don't know about you, but when you read this, uh, there's some unusual aspects to it. Uh, I don't know whether you're perhaps looking at it on the version Bible app on your phone, or whether you're looking in a hard copy Bible, but in lots of translations, they indent it slightly, and it comes across like a poem, doesn't it? It's not like just standard text, it's indented, and therefore it has this emphasis and this uh, special focus from John. He's trying to bring out some points. Something else that I've noticed is that he repeats himself. Have you spotted that? He kind of says these things, and then he sort of says them again. And you find yourself thinking, well, yeah, I just heard you say that, John. Do I need to hear that again? You obviously seem to think that I do. And then he kind of addresses different generations, doesn't he? He says uh, to spiritual offspring, uh, or it might say children in your passage, he talks to fathers, he talks to young men, he talks to children. He doesn't seem to get them in the right order. Like, I'm like a very kind of ordered sequence person. I'd put that in a different order, but he doesn't do that. He also uses repetition. Have you spotted that maybe in your uh, Bibles it says, I write, I write, I write six times in a row. He just keeps on saying the same thing again, I write to you because, I write to you because. So what we have in this text from John is a little insert of focus from him to get our attention, to get us focused on what it is he wants to say to us that's slightly different from the rest of our Bible text. Can you see that? And it kind of lifts out and you go, oh, that's a bit odd. And that's precisely what he's trying to do with us this morning. Let me tell you a little bit about John and his background. This letter is written by the Apostle John, who was responsible for the Gospel of John. So you've got uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and this is the guy that wrote John's Gospel. And he also writes 1 John and the the letters of John, 1 John, 2 John, etc. He has a long track record by this time as a writer and as an evangelist, and, a, and as a disciple of Jesus. Let me just give you some timescales. When he wrote John's Gospel, and when he wrote some of these letters, we're talking about A.D. 85 to 90, something like 50 years on from his time with Jesus. So he is now becoming like a kind of an elder statesman of the faith. He has seen a lot of generations. He has seen a lot of people come to Christ. He has seen lots of ages spring up. Lots of children come along who've then become young men, who've then become fathers, who've then had children. He has seen it all. And so he's writing to the church with these generations in mind. Now, John was a person who saw everything for himself. He started following Jesus. He was one of the original 12 disciples. He would have seen Jesus go to the cross. He would have heard Jesus preach with his own ears. He would have seen and heard and sort of drank in everything that there was to receive from Jesus. His track record as a person was unparalleled by this time. In fact, some scholars think that he was probably the only disciple who had been with Jesus who was still left alive at this point. And so to have someone in your church who had actually seen and walked with Jesus and was one of the 12 disciples was incredible for that church. And he's writing out of that experience uh, to try and encourage them. Something happens with new generations, though, in my view. And I'm pretty sure most of the parents in the room will agree, me, will agree with me when they, when they hear this. There's something about new generations that come up behind us, and we kind of think, oh, what are you up to? You're running off with that thing, or you're running off with this thought, or this fashion. And grandparents... It's even worse. Like grandparents, was like, okay, you know, like, if that's what you're into, that's great. New generations come along and they do some surprising things and they run away with stuff and we're not quite sure where they're going. Let me share a little story as an example of just how this happens. Um, uh, we went to uh, Chloe's mum and dad's for a few days. Uh, this was about six or seven years ago. And uh, Adam, our youngest son, uh, said, um, uh, oh, I'm, I, I, I kind of need a new transformer, granddad. To which Chloe's dad said straight away, why is the, power on your, is the power on your train set not working anymore? To which Adam was like a little bit mystified and scratching his head and going, um, oh, I don't have a train set, but I do have, I'm, like I want like, a toy that turns into another toy. And you can kind of get the sense of the difference between those things from, the, from that picture there. For uh, for Adam's grandfather, a transformer is something that supplies power to a train set. For Adam, a transformer is a thing that is a toy that changes from a car into a robot. They're totally different things. And in the generation gap between the two, something has changed. Something has shifted. Language and culture has moved on. That's a little flavor of what happens when new generations come along. They go off in new directions that we weren't expecting. And John is trying to write to tackle some of this in this passage today. Let me also share something with you about what I would call landmark events. Landmark events are things that can lead to good things in history. Some amazing things can come along, and uh, they can absolutely bless culture and civilization and take society forward. Uh, Let me give you an example of that. Uh, In 1963, uh, Martin Luther King gave a speech, uh, a very famous speech called, I Have a Dream. And in it, he laid out the manifesto of the civil rights movement. He said, why can't black people and white people be equal together? That's ridiculous that we have that in our society. That's just so wrong. I'm saying it a lot worse than he did, by the way. Um, But he basically laid out that strong sense of equality for which that speech was very, very famous. Forty-five years later, in 2008, who gets elected to the presidency of the White House or, or becomes president in the White House? Barack Obama, America's first black president. Now, I don't think it's any accident that a generation before that, Martin Luther King... It uh, brings an incredibly powerful speech that goes down in history and become, becomes part of the cultural and sociological makeup of a whole generation. And therefore, they all accept and take that as the norm. That is their new reality. And out of that, there comes an election and a presidency uh, in the form of Barack Obama. And so that's a good thing. A landmark event can be a very good thing for a society. I think landmark events can also create skepticism. They can also create doubt and disbelief. Now, it's uh, 40, uh, 55, whatever it is, odd years since uh, we went to the moon in 1969. And what you'll see, if you go around on the internet and have a look at what's, uh, what people are saying, is you'll see that there are lots and lots of conspiracy theories afoot about whether that really happened or not. And if you read them, they seem convincing, don't they? You read through and you think, oh, oh, I thought it was real, but, oh, this person's saying this, and look at this flag, and look at this shadow, and, and you're not really sure anymore. Well, let's just settle that one, once and for all. Uh, NASA have had a probe going round the Moon since 2009 that's taken thousands of photographs, and actually they've managed to zero in on where the Apollo missions landed, and they can even see the footprints in the dust of the, of the lunar surface. You can probably see them there. And that's taken from the surface of the Moon. So that issue is a a non-issue. But what I confidently predict will happen is that increasingly, as we go through the decades and the generations, more and more people will say, oh, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that that really happened. I know that there's lots of evidence for it, but yeah, I I don't really think that's true. They will start to question that. So landmark events can have very good effects, but also landmark events can have effects where people start to, to doubt things and they start to be unsure. Why am I speaking about this to you today? The reason I'm sharing this with you is because I think that John is speaking to generations and he's speaking at generations in order to encourage them, to remind them what's true and to clarify the basics of their faith. He's being very basic, very straightforward, very down the line. This is what we believe and you are believing it and well done for believing it. That's what he's saying to them. And it's it's no accident that this letter appears and these reminders appear because it's several generations after the biggest landmark event in history, which was the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And so there's a whole swathe of people who are coming through who right at the time were white hot with it. And then there's a generation came along who were great with it. And then there was another generation who, who came along who went, wow, my parents are really into this. And then there was another generation who came along who said, well, that's great. And now we're getting to a generation that's like, it's all inherited and hearsay, and we have this old guy in our church who says he saw everything, and I'm going to believe him, but I'm still not sure. Oh, and by the way, he's written us a letter, and he's laid it out for us, and that really helps me. Do you get what John is doing here? Do you see that now? Great. That's really important that you understand that, because what John is doing is in the context of several generations on. What is really interesting and fascinating to me as a bit of a Bible scholar is that shortly after John dies, there's a whole load of heresy starts springing up. Lots of people start inventing things because all the people who were there at the time are now dead. And they can't refute those people. They can't argue with them. And so around about AD 100, AD 120, you start start to see all these heresies called Gnosticism. Uh, and and groups of of people who think really strange things, and they start taking the core of the Christian message and twisting it slightly and watering it down and making it different and making it so different that it's got no bearing or reality on anything that those original disciples saw or heard or understood or received from Jesus. Uh, Let me give you an example of just how weird some of these uh, heresies are. Like in the Gospel of Thomas it makes the claim that for any women to get into heaven, they have to become men. Well, that's not right, is it? I mean, what a ridiculous assertion that is. And you can tell when you read some of these things that you can't hear Jesus' voice in them. What is really fascinating to me as well is that historians have worked out that it's actually a feature of a really true event that's had a massive impact, that around about three or four generations later, you get loads of stories and myths And extra bits added and people trying to water it down. And in fact, that's a hallmark of the fact that the thing was really true in the first place. So it should be no surprise to us that we see all these things. And you can see this is a a fragment of the Gospel of Thomas up there. So what is it that John is trying to say to us? Why is he emphasizing these things in this way? It's because he wants to tackle that generational problem and put some baseline reminders and, uh, and facts straight down uh, in their makeup. So let's take, let's take you through how this works. Um, if you imagine John is like the spiritual father and the elder of the church there. Um, and uh, what he's saying is that all of the people that he's kind of won uh, over the years through his ministry... Um, they're like his spiritual children. They're like his spiritual offspring and they're represented. We just have the next slide up if that's all right. They're represented by uh, the, the big green bubble there. That would be all of us if it were. Uh, if you imagine Mark is perhaps like John and he's up on the left there. He's kind of like the, 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 the pastor and the leader of the church and he's got the most experience and the wisdom and then we're all in the green bubble with Mark and the, the defining characteristic of what it means to be a, a, a child of God Uh, is that all our sins are forgiven on account of his name. We are forgiven everything that we've ever done wrong. And if you just think about that for a moment, that is a massive, massive deal. Every single one of us in this room, we just have to do a little inventory of our thought life in the last 24 hours to know that we are not perfect. Yes? Yes? Yeah, we have to recognize that. You know, some people criticize Christianity for being a crutch and for being like, oh, yeah, you need, all, you, know, you need all that help and all that, you know. Yeah, I do need all that help because I know how rotten I am or how, I, how awful I can be. And I think all of us sense that we need that forgiveness for, from the sins uh, that we commit or that we think or that we say. So we are collectively in that great, great big group there. And that's how John sets it out at the beginning. We are forgiven his sins on account of the name of Jesus, who is the only name that can forgive all our sins. The second, the se- So that's everybody. The second group that he addresses are the fathers. He talks to the fathers. He addresses them twice. It's kind of strange because he says the same things to, uh, to them twice. He says, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Are there any fathers in the house today who know Jesus? put your hand up, dads, if you know Jesus. Come on, do it. Join me. I know Jesus. We need some dads who know Jesus. We have this uh, lack in the church of men who are completely on fire for God and who know Jesus. We need some dads who know heart to heart that they have a relationship with Jesus. It is so important. Now, I'm not, doing anything, I'm not saying anything against the women, but you know what, women, you get relationships just that little bit better, I feel, than we, we men do. We don't get it. We need a relationship with the Father. Men need to connect with God as Father. It is absolutely essential. And what John says in this passage is he says, you fathers, you have known him, and you've known him from the beginning. You've known that he's been there from the very beginning. And what he's pointing at here is he kind of contrasts with the children who just know him. What he says about the dads is you've known him from the beginning because you have an intellect. You've got maturity now. You see the big picture. Does that make sense? Dads, we need to know Jesus. There's no substitute for that. You need to know him in here, in your Noah. Yes? You with me? Tell me. Amen, yes? Thank you, church. Then he addresses young men. And we can infer from that he means young women too. And what does he say to the young men and the young women that's their characteristic? He says this he says, Because you have overcome the evil one. Well, he says that twice. And then he says, Because you are strong and the word of God remains in you. I think this is pretty countercultural. You know, as church leaders, we go away and we have conferences and we talk about how we can grow the church. And many uh, leaders at the moment are looking at the, the, uh, the, the profile of the church, the age profile. And we would say that 16 to 35 age range is a little bit lacking sometimes. Not so much at BCC. We're very blessed in that. But in many churches around the UK, there's this kind of dip where people are not there. What John seems to be pointing out in his church that he's writing to and congratulating and saying well done to is that there's this bank of 16 to 35-year-olds that are absolutely rock-solid with God's Word. In fact, they are so strong with God's Word that the devil gets an electric shock off them if he tries to come near to them, because they are filled with the live power of the Word. That is a fantastic thing. Why could we not have that in all our churches right now? You know, we're, as older Christians, sometimes as leaders, we can kind of get a little wary, can't we, of congratulating young people on beating the devil? That seems a little unwise, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, you're 21, you can give the devil a caning. We don't say that often, do we? But what John seems to be saying is, if you young people get into the Word, you, that's exactly what you'll do. You will cause the devil havoc. And he praises the people he writes to in his church for that very reason. And I find that incredibly appealing. And I think John takes his precedent for that from Jesus himself. How old was Jesus when he went out into the desert to be tempted by the devil and was led there by the spirit? Anyone know? About 30, wasn't it? So he wasn't like massively advanced in years. And he went out and he fasted for 40 days. And the devil came at him three times. And on each of those three occasions, how did Jesus rebuff the devil? He said, it is written. He went to the word Which is what John congratulates these young people in his church for in exactly the same way. They know the word. So all of you in the room who are between 16 and 35, get into your word. Know it so well that if the enemy comes at you, he runs away in fright. You need to know your word inside out. It is no excuse that you don't know the word. You know, something that I find really annoys me and kind of, well, it just really annoys me. The Jehovah's Witnesses, when they come to the door, most Christians cannot beat them in an argument. Yeah. And do you know why that is? It's because we don't know our word really well. Amen. Can I recommend that you get behind what Jehovah's Witnesses say and understand how to unpick it and how to beat them on the doorstep? Because it beefs up your word like nothing else you will be able to understand how to counter them and you will know why what you believe uh, is is the case. You can present great arguments uh, from doing that. Get into the word. Scare the hell out of the devil. You need to do it. The last group of people, the last group of people that uh, John writes to are the children. John writes to kids. Now, it might be the spiritually junior, but I think it's children. And I think it's kids who are probably up to the age of 12. And what's their characteristic that he praises them for, that he encourages them for? It's that they simply know God. There's no further qualification. They know God. Uh, One of the great things about working in BCC Kids, as Chloe and I do, and so many of you uh, wonderful folk help with, is that when kids get God, they just get God. It's just so great. They just lean into him like he's really there because you know what? He really is. They'll pray stuff and they'll speak to him and they'll tell you things. And they understand who God is in a great, great way. It's just a fantastic thing to to be around and be part of. And in fact, I would really encourage you, if you would want to get involved in that ministry, you will be blessed more than they will because of their faith. Now, I think it's something to do with uh, when kids are growing up, they don't have these big uh, philosophical questions. They just don't. They don't go, ooh, uh, about my parents. Should I know them? They just do know them. It's just there. And I think if we've got that beginnings of faith in our families and our young kids are getting that faith, it's very strong, very solid, and we should do everything we can to nurture that and grow that. When young children know God in a church... It's an awesome thing, and we should be doing all we can to increase that and grow that in our families and in our church. There's a great story I want to share with you this morning about the difference between fathers and children. Now, I don't know if you've heard of a guy called Lee Strobel. Uh, he wrote a book called The Case for Christ, and he approached the journey to understanding about Jesus very much from a position where I would approach it from, which is intellectual, rational, rational work through all the reasons, get all the academic stuff done, go and consult a few professors, all this kind of stuff. And he does this as a, an investigative journalist. And he, he works for a newspaper, he's a crime reporter, and he's, it has to be said he's a pretty cynical guy. Okay? And he works through all these different things, and he finally gets to the point where all the evidence that he's unpicked and tried to throw at people and try and sort of stir up and all the rest of it, he's got to this point in this, in this uh, investigation that he thinks, do you know what? The weight of evidence is overwhelmingly in favor of the existence of Christ and the fact that he was the Son of God and that he came for me and he came to deal with my sin. And so, after this two year journey, one day in his bedroom, he kneels down and he just says, Jesus, I think you're there. I'm, so, I'm sorry I've given you the runaround all this time, but I want to accept you as Lord and Savior. And he does, and he becomes a Christian. And the first person to notice the difference is his wife. His wife spots that he's become much, much nicer in the kind of six months after becoming a Christian. He's a lot less argumentative. He's kinder to her. There's some changes that have gone on in the inside because he has received uh, Jesus for himself. Here's the thing. This is the clincher at the end of the book. He's got a five-year-old girl. And one day, the five-year-old girl says, please, can I have what daddy's got? And she just wants whatever it is that he's got. Now, she doesn't know all the reasons and ins and outs, but she sees and she feels the difference. So for us as fathers and as parents, yes, of course, it's completely right. As intellectual people or clever people, we can get behind it all and understand it all. That's fine. But the most important thing for us all is that we know him on a heart level. That We know who he is. We know him as father and that children model that to us. They do. They absolutely model that to us. So some ways that you might want to respond this morning. I'm just going to ask the worship team to come back and be with us and to start to play. Take this card, the first response. Please take this card, put it in your wallet, put it in your phone, put it in your purse, have it in your Bible case. And in a few weeks' time, when you've forgotten about it, I've asked that the Holy Spirit will bring it out for you, okay? The Holy Spirit will bring that out for you, and you'll go, oh, yeah, I remember Pastor Nick's message, and I want you to ask yourself, is there somebody that I can encourage? Is there somebody that I can remind about some truths? Is there something that I can clarify for someone else? That's your first response. So hang on to that. Let the Holy Spirit drag it out in a few weeks' time, and then I want you to act on it. Now promise me, look me in the eye, and promise me you'll do this. Yes? Yes. Yes. Okay, Mark's saying yes. Come on, lift your hands with me, and promise me that you'll do this well done, thank you, I trust you you're all Christians yeah, okay so that's a card, that's the first way that you can respond the second way that you can respond is that you can follow Jesus yourself you know what, we don't take it for granted that that you have any particular kind of form of faith when you come to BCC, we just like the fact that you're our visitor and our guest but maybe you've come today and you've thought hmm, I want to check this place out what are they going on about I don't think Jesus exists but you know what, they seem to if that's you maybe something is stirring in your heart in your knower, In I don't mean Noah, the man in the Old Testament I mean the thing that knows spiritual things in here if that's stirring inside you you might think yeah, I, I think Jesus is real I think Jesus was a landmark event I want to respond to that in the right way I don't want to lose that chance if that's you we're going to pray this prayer right now It's up on the screen and I'm going to read it out. Would you all close your eyes with me? And we're just going to pray this prayer together. And this is for those people who are not sure on the inside if you know Jesus or you know God. This is for you. Pray this with me in your heart. Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for my wrongdoing. Please forgive me for being separated from you and from other people. I receive you into my life as Lord. Please lead me from now on. I surrender to you. I believe that you are alive and that you are with me now. I accept you into my life. Please help me to live for you. Thank you for your gift of eternal life for now and forever. Amen. And you know what? If you prayed that prayer on the inside, maybe you prayed it as a confirmation of something you didn't a long time ago or maybe you prayed it for the first time today I would be delighted to meet you at the end of our service we've got some little gifts around the side there and we would like to give those to you and that would be our pleasure wouldn't it Pastor Mark to get to know you and to greet you and to welcome you into God's family that's just an awesome thing the last way that we can respond and shall we all stand together for this let's all stand the last way that we can respond is we can encourage somebody in another generation Uh, I just want to say thanks to Siggy who took this photograph for us last weekend and this represents exactly what John is talking about here we've got somebody older encouraging somebody younger it's a great picture when I saw this picture I thought that is the one that's straight from our church, that's great you do an immense and a great thing when you encourage another generation Now, we're used to our parents encouraging us, aren't we? Hopefully, we had parents that encouraged us, and that's a great thing. But I want to turn it around a bit, and I want to say, hey, why don't you step out and encourage someone in a different generation to yours? They will be immensely blessed by that. Uh, When Chloe was first saved when she was 12, it was in the ministry of a man called Ishmael, who ran uh, summer camps uh, at at a Christian camp called Grapevine. And uh, she received uh, Jesus through his ministry and decided to follow him. And then decades later, Ishmael turns up to Bible College where, where, where I'm studying. And he's the speaker for this particular day. And Chloe and I are able to go and meet him. And Chloe says to him, do you know what? Thank you so much for what you did all those years ago that set me on a path of faith. That is what I'm talking about. That would have been so encouraging for Ishmael to hear that. Who is there in another generation from you that needs your encouraging and healing words to them? That will be a great response to today's message. Let's sing, and we'll uh, explore some more responses in a moment. Kevin, would you just lead us in worship? Thank you.